Uh, Eric Borges was uh, raised in a conservative Christian home. At a young age, Eric realized he was different. And other kids at school let him know it. He endured relentless and ongoing bullying throughout kindergarten. And the rest of his elementary school years were tarnished with horror. I was physically, mentally, verbally, and emotionally assaulted on a daily basis, recalls Eric. This led to chronic migraines, debilitating depression, suicidal thoughts, and a whole host of other mental and physical problems. My name was not Eric, but Faggot. I was stalked, spit on, and ostracized. On one occasion, he was assaulted in a full classroom and nobody intervened, not even the teacher who was present. Throughout school, Eric was treated like a monster, a subspecies of the human race. I was told that the very essence of my being was unacceptable. I had nowhere safe to go, not even church. In his sophomore year of college, Eric came out to his parents. He told them he was gay. After performing an exorcism on their son, they told him, among other things, that he was disgusting, perverted, unnatural, and damned to hell. Later that year, they kicked him out of the house. Eric shared his story on YouTube in 2011. In the video, he encouraged other youth who have had similar experience that it gets better. Having suffered in a hissing cauldron of ridicule and torment, Eric wanted to help others, to find comfort and hope, to pull them through the pain. One month later, Eric killed himself. I read this in the intro of a book by Preston Sprinkle. He went on to say, I wish Eric's story was an anomaly, but it's not. Having listened to countless testimonies and looking at startling statistics, I'm disheartened to say that the Christian community has often played an unintended yet active role in pushing gay people away from Christ, sometimes away from Christ and into the grave. The ones who don't kill themselves often end up leaving the church. But here's the thing. Most people who are attracted to the same sex don't end up leaving the church because they were told that same-sex behavior is wrong. They leave because they were dehumanized, ridiculed, and treated like an other. Most of my gay friends, Sprinkle goes on to say, and lesbian friends have diverse stories, but they are all held together by a common thread that looks a lot like Eric's. I was raised in the church, but everyone knew I was different. I was made fun of, mocked, and made to feel like a monster. When I came out, I was rejected, so I found another community where I was accepted. If the gospel is good news... And the church is to be the light that warms the world with the good news. Then why are LGBT people leaving the church in search of better news? If the gospel isn't good news for LGBT people, can I be frank with you? Then it's not good news, is it? So... The purpose of our Sunday night seminars uh, this year is really to be a resource in the area of practical theology in life today. So our first one last month was about technology. How do we live in our technological moment? Um, The next one will be on finance. This one is on LGBT. 
And so while, while teaching and dialogue in the church about LGBT issues is certainly a hot button issue, it's not primarily an issue. It's people. It's people. People to be loved with the love of Christ by the church. And so the posture uh, of this seminar, the posture that I, I carry myself with and the posture that you carry yourself with tonight is, is really, really important. Just, just kind of fundamentally, big picture, every person on the planet is made in the image of God, meaning they're worthy of dignity and value. Every person has a soul that will last forever and is an image bearer of God. Everyone. So how we conduct ourselves tonight is actually an opportunity to model our belief in the fact that everyone's an image bearer. There are no second class citizens. The goal of this seminar is uh, really, uh, I actually have a very small goal, a very minor goal. I don't have a lofty goal tonight. I have a very small goal. And the goal tonight is that we would just start a conversation. I actually, I hope we're not starting a conversation. I, I, I just want this evening to merely be a contribution to a much larger and ongoing conversation, okay? So if you are here, uh, this is another important thing I want to say out of the gate. If you are here and the term LGBT represents you, I am so glad you're here. I'm so glad, so glad that you are here. I see you. I care about you, and my belief is that the church should be a safe space for you. And I'm not alone in that, okay? I'm really glad you're here. And I, I want to acknowledge that I'm a heterosexual married man who is not an expert on these topics. I'm a pastor who loves my church and wants to see those in, in, in my church and our broader community discover Jesus more intimately. Like that's, that's the heart behind this. That's all I see myself as. And so I want you to hear me navigating with that kind of a posture. Don't claim to be the expert on, on, on all of these things. But I have a heart for you and heart for the LGBT community uh, among us in our church and, and beyond. Um, has everyone done their assigned listening, reading, and watching? All right, everybody who hasn't in the back row, no, it's <clears throat> get out. No, it's um, did that for a few reasons, okay? Asked you to come prepared, uh, having done that work for a few reasons. One, there are a lot of great resources out there, a lot of great resources out there, and, and it's my great pleasure to put some of them in front of you. I'm not super comfortable necessarily, like I care about, you know, kind of what you read, what you watch, and so I don't love the Google search and see what I find. I love to put amazing resources in front of you of people who are wise about this, experiencing these things, and so I wanted to put some of those stories and people in front of you. Second, theology matters. Beliefs matter. They shape and they govern our lives, right? What we believe, we, we, we live out. And so beliefs are foundational, ex extremely important. So I wanted you to be exposed to some clear, historic, biblical teaching. And yet at the same time, ha not have that take the entirety of our seminar tonight because, because that's the foundation for us, but not the focus per se of, of our time together tonight. There's so much to talk about and, and we're gonna use our two hours specifically 
on how we can focus on embodying the love of Jesus towards sexual and gender minorities. Perhaps you came here with a, a question kind of burning into your, your mind or your heart, and you're really, really, really hoping that we address it tonight in some way. Um, perhaps as the night unfolds, you'll have questions that arise. Um, again, uh, I'm trying, trying to be a faithful pastor in our church and in our community, and so I study this as recognizing it's kind of the issue of our moment, and so I study it that way, and I have thought about these things, and so I, I do have some things to contribute to some questions, but don't claim that I'll know how to speak to all of them. So this is what we're going to do. Um, we're going to th throw a number, a phone number on the screen, and I have a phone here that's not mine, and it says, test, Jordo. Nice job, man. All right, so it works. Um, you can text for probably the first half of the evening. That'll be along the top there. You can text a question that you have. You're hoping you'll hear a response on tonight to the phone. Ron calls this a burner phone. And when I hear that this is a burner phone, it makes me think of like spy movies where like later they like take it apart and throw it in the trash. And I'm tempted to do that at the end of the night, but I'm more stewardly than that. I won't, okay. Um, if you've come to seminars before or leadership labs we did last year, you know I love to give away books. So um, let's get this done real quick and, um, and then we'll carry on. We have so much to talk about tonight. Um, these uh, four books I commend to you. If you um, can promise me that you will actually read it, I will give it to you if you win. Um, and um, if you haven't read a book, though, in the last three years, don't even stand up. We know you're not reading it. Okay, this is... This, but start following these people, and you can see their tweets 150 characters at a time, okay? Let's go that way. Either way, kind of make note of them. Um, but uh, if you would like this, if you would find it interesting, and you, you'll commit to reading it, I want you to stand, okay? So the first one, stand if you want this book, is called Gay Girl, Good God. It's by Jackie Hill Perry. Uh, she shares her story, offering practical tools that helped her in the process of finding wholeness. Jackie grew up fatherless and experienced gender confusion. She smoked weed, loved pornography, and embraced both masculinity and homosexuality with every fiber of her being. At age 19, she met Jesus. She tells her story. Um, is anybody interested in, in going home with gay girl, good God? Why don't you stand up? Stand up. Keep standing up if this, if this interests you, and you'd read it. Okay, what's the date today? November 17th. Who, ha who thinks they have the birthday closest to today? Anybody? Nobody's birthday's close, so now we have to figure this out mathematically. <laughs> All right, there you go. Got it for your wife. I like it. All right, Prossy, it's at the front row here for you. Okay, uh, this next book, Is God Anti-Gay, is written by Sam Albury. Uh, this is a really short book, <laughs> really readable. 88, 88 pages, everybody. Uh, Sam Albury, he, he handles people carefully, text wisely, and issue sensitively, and the result is a supremely helpful book on perhaps the most challenging issue Western Christians face today. You jumped up so fast, you just get this, all right? Yeah, you're the tallest person, so yeah, you get this. Okay, perfect. Uh, here's a really important book. It's by Mark Yarhouse, uh, Understanding Gender Dysphoria. Oh, too, oh, many people stood up quick. 
Um, Mark Yarhouse, note the name. He's an expert in sexual identity and therapy. He challenges uh, the church to rise above political hostilities and listen to people's stories. In Understanding Gender Dysphoria, Yarhouse offers a Christian perspective on transgender issues that eschews simplistic answers and appreciates the psychological and theological complexity. Whose birthday is closest to November 17? There you go. Right? Anybody beat that? Oh, it's so close. <laughs> awesome. There we go. How many more we got? One more. Messy Grace. I just came across this book recently and love it. I'm going to reference a chapter he has called Messy Church. Uh, but when Caleb was a kid, nice. When Caleb was a kid, <laughs> a couple cracks at it, right? When Caleb was a kid, uh, his parents divorced and they both came out as gay his dad and his mom. His mom uh, found a partner, I'm not, I think they got married, and so he started to live with his mom and his stepmom. Um, when he was a teenager, uh, Caleb came to Christ and he lived in this tension. Like, how do I love my family well? How do I embody this? But my parents actually hate that I've become a Christian. How do I live, how do I love them and love Jesus? What does it look like? And so he wrote a book called Messy Grace. You, you stood up twice, real quick. I'm sorry, everybody else, but there you go. Okay, very cool, all right. Now, everybody stand up. Everybody stand up. See, when you have the microphone, you can ask people to do uh, uncomfortable things. You're already standing. There's nothing you can do about it. This is risky. This, is, this could be awkward for you. Everybody's so nervous. There are three texts in the New Testament that, that really explicitly speak about homosexuality. I'm not gonna mention that part of the next three texts, but I'm gonna put the three texts on the screen because in every single circumstance, there are a number of other things also listed. What I'm gonna ask you to do when it comes on the screen is this, I'm gonna start to read them out. Once you, once I say to you something that um, is, is considered a sin in these texts, I just want you to sit down. That, that you relate to, that you relate to, okay? <laughs> that you're like, oh, this is, this is an area for me of challenge. Okay, so let's throw the slide up. Let's throw the slide up. Romans chapter one, sit down when something resonates with you and say, this is an area of sin for me. Covetousness. <laughs> I was pretty sure that would get everybody. Hey, that's okay if it doesn't. Envy. Okay. No, you're just sitting down because you're embarrassed. You're such a saint. You're like, I'm, I'm still standing. Deceit. Like, see how quick that happened? Deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slander, insolent, haughty, boastful, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, ruthless. First Corinthians 6, sexual immorality, which is quite a broad catch-all. Idolaters, adulterers, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. First Timothy 1, those who strike their fathers and mothers. Sexually immoral, um, again, very broad, liars, perjurers, and then this catch-all term, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. What? Said doctrine, sound doctrine. Okay. Here's why I do this little exercise with you. That should affect our posture for the rest of the night, no? 
I left out uh, homosexuality, which is included in those lists in every, in every text. I left them out, but, but I just want you to see that nobody can look at any of these passage and not say, that's me. And so what, I, what I'm trying to get at is, is this idea about the gospel, that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And so all of us identify with multiple things in these lists, but it goes beyond that as well. Just when it comes to sexuality, every single one of you, every single one of you and myself, I mean, I'm still standing only because I'm presenting, okay? All of us are also sexually broken. We're actually all sexual sinners as well. And so this, this, should, this should help us with our posture when it comes to how we treat people and handle these issues. Now at Central, you probably gathered it from, from the study I asked you to do. I, I gave a sermon on homosexuality that was posted there as well. At Central, we hold what we would call a historic view of the Bible when it comes to sexuality and gender, okay? And so... so we're, we're, we, we don't believe that we can, can change what the scriptures say on that and believe there's a, a, a level of clarity that's been had uh, throughout the centuries. But, but here's the thing. Our goal as a church is to be exceedingly biblical, not when it comes simply to LGBT issues, but exceedingly biblical when it comes to all of it. So this is what I mean. That means as a church, we want to be exceedingly loving, exceedingly compassionate, exceedingly countercultural, and exceedingly unique as a community of faith, okay? Like when we say we want to be biblical, I, I don't mean biblical when it comes to LGBT. I mean biblical, full stop, about all of it. And so... Uh, we need to have a much broader conversation for just a few minutes, and then we're going to dive in uh, much more specifically to uh, the, the, the kind of some of the topics of, of the night. But I want to speak more broadly for a few minutes about something that, that is referred to as missional ecclesiology. Uh, missional is this idea that followers of Jesus live on mission. The mission of our lives is that to, to help others come to know Christ. And, and that's the great urgency in our lives, right? And so to be missional is to have that. Ecclesiology has everything to do with nature and structure of the church. Ecclesia, the church. So missional ecclesiology. And so um, John Tyson in one of the talks talked about this a little bit. But many churches function this way. Behave the right way believe the right things, and then we'll let you in and belong. Many churches function that way, right? A missional church functions this way. We want to love you. And we want you to meet Jesus, not as a bait and switch, but, but as, as this genuine desire above all else that you would know Jesus. So we want to love you genuinely. We genuinely want you to meet Jesus. And ultimately, we'll trust that intimacy with Jesus and the indwelling Holy Spirit will produce the spiritual formation that he will require. In other words, we have two options when it comes to how we, how we embody being the church here at Central. We have two options. We can invite, we can kind of do it from the outside in. Your life doesn't look right. I want to, I want to deal with these areas. And you start from the outside and you try to work your way into the middle. Or, or, or we can function in a way that works from the middle. Like I want you and Jesus to know each other. And then let that permeate all the way up. One is a missional church and the other is not. You look different. You act different. Are you from, like, 
how did you get here? Like, right? any, any of that kind of stuff is sort of this, I expect you to behave if you want to belong. The missional church actually is like, we want to love you. We're so glad you're here. We want to embrace you. We want you in. We want you to know this Jesus we talk about every week. And so we genuinely want that for you. And it works its way out. And so we ought to be a safe and welcoming place for all sinners and be so robustly for their good, so gospel that we don't want them to stay there. Anybody, anybody who, who comes to our church, but want them to grow in discipleship. Um, one Christian thinker talks about this this way. Many, many non-believers have friends or relatives who have become born again and seem to have gone off the deep end. They soon begin to express loudly their disapproval of various groups and sectors of our society, especially movies and television, the Democratic Party, it's an American, homosexuals, evolutionists, activist judges, members of other religions, and the values taught in public schools. When arguing for, their, for the truth of their faith, they often appear intolerant and self-righteous. This is what many people would call fanaticism or fundamentalism. Think of people you consider fanatical. They're overbearing, self-righteous, opinionated, insensitive, and harsh. Why? It's not because they are too Christian. It's because they're not Christian enough. They are fanatically zealous and courageous, but they are not fanatically humble, sensitive, loving, empathetic, forgiving, or understanding as Christ was. So because they think of Christianity as a self-improvement program, they emulate the Jesus of the whips in the temple, but not the Jesus who said, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. What strikes us as overly fanatical is actually a failure to be fully committed to Christ and his gospel. In Jesus and the prophet's critique, self-righteous religion is always marked by insensitivity to issues of social justice. While true faith is marked by profound concern for the poor and the marginalized. Francis Schaeffer said something that has become one of my favorite quotes. He said, biblical orthodoxy without compassion is surely the ugliest thing in the world. So to get all of our theological ducks in a row, but not embody the compassionate love and grace of Jesus is actually not to get our theological ducks in a row. Right? Sound doctrine and loving others aren't mutually exclusive. Actually, one confirms the other. And if you look at the life of Jesus, if you read the Gospels and you look at his ministry, you'll see over and over again that Jesus got hit from both sides. So he's preaching the Sermon on the Mount and he says, if anyone even looks at a woman with lustful intent, they've committed adultery with, with her in his heart. So Jesus actually ups it when it comes to sound doctrine, when it comes to truth. So he, he, he was radical about truth and took flack for it, yet he hung out with sinners. He was so radically missional, right? We read that Jesus was a friend of tax collectors and sinners, and he got flack for it. Meaning, if you're not regularly critiqued from both sides, the religious and the non-religious, you're probably not following the way of Jesus very closely. Whew. 
Do you agree? I believe that the great, the great cause of poor love of people and poor theology in the church, either poor love of people or poor theology in the church is the persistence of a false dichotomy that we can only do one or the other. We can only love people or, or get our theology right. But it's not the Bible or people. It's always the Bible and people. Jesus is described as full of grace and truth. When the Bible gets wielded as a weapon against for the sake of tr- against people for the sake of truth, or the Bible is adapted or rejected in order to love, we've missed the way of Jesus. He embodied. Uh, uh, John Tyson said something along these lines. He embodied Sermon on the Mount righteousness and boundary crossing compassion. And this is the tightrope we are called to walk as followers of Jesus. It's not easy, but this and this alone is the way of Jesus. I'm going to refer to Caleb Kaltenbach here from Messy Grace in a second. Um, But this whole standing in front of the stage thing was not a great idea. Hey, Jordan, I'm just like ringing all the time. Sorry about that, everybody. Once you stand up like four feet, it changes the dynamic. Okay. Okay. Caleb Kaltenbach from Messy Grace, he shares something uh, that we'll get to in a second, but I'm going to get you to turn to six to eight people around you for 10 minutes of discussion, okay? Here's what, you can talk about any of the following four things. You can contribute in any way. So you can pass on questions, you don't need to speak to stuff, but I just want to get us talking for a few minutes about any of the following. Why are you here tonight? You can pass on that one. You don't have to talk about it, but you're welcome to. Two, what takeaways are you hoping for tonight? Third, and here's the Caleb Colton part. He asked this question. Is our church a place, or churches, and I'm, I'm bringing it into us, is our church, is central a place where it's okay for people to say things like these? I'm an addict and I want to know my next step. I can't handle my finances. I'm struggling with porn. I'm not doing well in my marriage. I'm a gossip and I want to stop. I'm having issues with my kids. I'm struggling with my sexuality. I'm gay. And the fourth question that you can interact with is, should our church be that kind of place? All right, 10 minutes, six to eight people around you, and then we'll carry on. Okay, wrap it up. Okay, you got you're, everybody, you're doing great. You're doing great. Good work. Fruitful conversation? Yeah? Awesome. We're going get to get you to do that one more time uh, a bit later on. <clears throat> going back to that opening story, uh, my hope, uh, a desired outcome of this seminar uh, for me and, and our ongoing conversations in ministry in this regard is that we would be the kind of church where it's okay not to be okay. You know what I mean? Uh, for whatever reason, we, we can put up high walls uh, on each other so that nobody feels okay not being okay. And that, that's not the culture of a missional church, right? We're in such a post-Christian era. If we can't get this right, right, we, we'll watch this thing die <laughs> because we actually have to know how to live uh, 
in, in, live authentically. Uh, we have to learn how to um, be uh, a beautiful community, and that, that takes risk. Uh, to be attractive as a church is, is to be real. So um, at, at churches where it's okay not to be okay, you can show up and discover an expectation that the next person's just as messed up as you are, you know? You can be honest about your struggles at that kind of a church. And you can be honest about your past because it's in the DNA of the church for people to be real, right? This is a reason why I, why I try and share vulnerably without oversharing, without <laughs> over disclosure. I try and share vulnerably frequently in my preaching because I know that if our leaders aren't vulnerable, no one else is going to be, right? We, we have to try and model it. We need to be a vulnerable, authentic place. And so when we don't expect each other as fellow believers to be perfect, when the expectation is even that the pastor's not gonna be perfect, room is created to work out the struggles between you and God and with supportive faith community where no one views themselves with superiority. That's why we looked at those three texts, but instead are more than happy to walk alongside each other in our faith journey. At times it will be messy. At times it will be confusing when we try to show both grace and truth, but that's a tension of the tightrope we were talking about. We are to constantly attempt to walk. Most of us, myself included, aren't comfortable with church being messy, but I think that this kind of posture and context for ministry makes church messy in a good way. So Caleb Kaltenbach uh, talks about those, those, those questions. And then he says, if we get this wrong, our church will become a place that's messy in a bad way. We will be one or the other. We will be messy in a good way, or we will be messy in a bad way. Here's what he means about messy in a bad way. Because if our churches are places where people can't be honest, we're creating sanctuaries for fake people. Ultimately, our church becomes a Pharisee factory. Whew. So which will it be? This is one of my desired outcomes tonight. Which will it be? Messy in a good way or messy in a bad way? We're going to look at a story because I said, we're not talking about the LGBT issue tonight because this, is, this isn't so much an issue as it is people. And uh, my longing is, is to make this really personal for you. And so we're going to show you a video where people are going to share their stories vulnerably. Uh, Emily and I were at a conference in the spring called Q, Q Ideas Conference. And uh, Preston Sprinkle, who I referred to earlier, uh, hosted a panel with three of his friends. And uh, you're going to meet them. I think you're going to love them. And I think it really personalizes the conversation. So I want you to enjoy this. And then we'll, we'll pick it up. Uh, this is about 20 minutes long. I'll, I'll jump back up when it's concluded. Okay, let's, let's bring it back. Are we doing okay? Are we hanging in there? Okay, we are going to be in tight because uh, we're going to be done at eight. Um, a number of questions have come in. Um, 
I'm going to try my best to start with the ones that have come in most frequently. I see a few of the same questions coming quite regularly, so we'll try and handle those first and then work our way through. Um, so let's go from there. Um, <clears throat> one of my discoveries in the church uh, that I, I experience myself is is that there's a, there's a posture or a reaction or a way we often handle scenarios when we don't know much about them. Um, so we can kind of be governed by fear in those instances. Is fear a good place to function from on the regular? It often doesn't lead to the right kind of posture, um, the right kind of clarity of thinking, the right... right so, so the next little bit, I'm just going to define a few terms that I think you all hear all the time and may be confused about. Maybe you know more than I do on a lot of this stuff, but I'm just going to give us a few definitions <clears throat> because uh, I think they're just educational. And I, I think they just, well, the, more we, the more we know, we can wrap our minds around, we can also wrap our hearts around and, and have better understanding. Here's the first one I'd like to define. You've heard it a few times tonight. Gender dysphoria. Gender dysphoria is the somewhat newer psychological term. Prior, uh, it was uh, referred to as gender identity disorder. Uh, gender dysphoria it, uh, has been given to describe somebody who feels high levels of incongruence or disconnect between their internal sense of who they are, called their gender identity, versus their biological sex. Gender dysphoria, I think, is a helpful term. Think of euphoria. Euphoria, we think positive, right? Dysphoria, we think negative. So for many, this is, this is very negative. This is deeply distressing. To experience gender dysphoria is to be uh, typically in a place of, of, of great distress. So, so the majority of us in the room we're born male or born female and we resonate with that and we feel male or we feel female and we don't even think about it. That's not the case for those experiencing gender dysphoria. It's not the case at all. It's distressing. There's an incongruence. So that, that, that's what's going on. Uh, for many, it's so deeply distressing that it can rise to the level where it's a diagnosable disorder, uh, gender identity disorder. Uh, it can rise to the being the place where it's so deeply distressing that for that reason, it's a mental health concern. And then you try to respond to that mental health concern as you do other mental health concerns. Okay. Um, that's a little bit from Mark Yarhouse. There is there, there is that incongruence, but sometimes it's so distressing that we kind of, we see that uh, being a major factor in, in kind of people's mental health. Uh, transgender, transgender, think of transgender as the, as the, um, broad umbrella term that continues to be shaped and used in uh, flexible, sometimes ill-defined ways. So there are even those in psychology who are like trying to hold the reins in on what transgender means. It's, it's constantly um, kind of flexible, malleable. Uh, and so it can mean anything. In 2019, transgender can mean anything from somebody who believes they are the opposite sex of their actual body or their, their biological body. I am a woman, even if they have a body of a man, for example, or somebody who identifies as transgender to mean the dysphoria they live with. Someone who is experiencing gender dysphoria could consider themselves transgender. Um, they don't actually believe they're a male. They know they're a female, 
but consider themselves transgender because of that incongruence, or others who don't match the stereotypes of masculinity or femininity and are questioning for those reasons uh, might identify with that term of transgender. Cisgender. Heard, a, heard this? Cisgender, right? Cisgender is a term for people whose gender identity matches the sex that they were assigned at birth. So, for, for example, someone who identifies as a woman and was assigned female at birth is a cisgender woman, and vice versa. Intersex. Uh, formerly, uh, the, the definition I'll give is, was formerly uh, hermaphrodite, but we try not to use that language anymore. It's not really appreciated. Um, same with homosexual, by the way. Uh, typically, it's not really appreciated to be called someone who's homosexual. I'm gay. I'm gay, okay? So gay, lesbian, that's just the preferred, so let's kind of do away with homosexual just to be kind of hospitable. Same with hermaphrodite, that's kind of a term that's kind of gone, up, gone by the wayside. Intersex is the, the term that is preferred, and intersex is a general term used for a variety of conditions in which a person is born with a reproductive or sexual anatomy that doesn't seem to fit the typical definitions of female or male. Intersex people are individuals born with any of several variations in sex characteristics, including chromosomes, gonads, sex hormones, or genitals that do not fit the typical definitions for male or female bodies. A person may be born with mosaic genetics so that some of her cells have XX chromosomes and some of them have XY, or a person may be born with genitals that seem to be in between the usual male and female types. Um, intersex was originally a medical term that was later embraced by some intersex persons. Many experts and persons with intersex conditions have recently recommended adopting the term disorders of sex development. So that's another way to frame it. Disorders of sex development. They feel that this term is more accurate and less stigmatizing than even the term intersex. So actually, I have to eat my own words. So we've gone, right, just to try to keep up with the language. Hermaphrodite's gone by the wayside, and many people who we would consider intersex would actually prefer uh, the term disorders of sex development. Um, there is no simple answer to this question. The kind of intersex conditions are so varied. But, but this is one of the reasons why I invite uh, listening, right? We've kind of been pushing for that compassion, listening, um, gaining understanding, because um, if you put a, tr a transgender label on somebody or they use that and you're wondering what that is, they might identify as intersex and genuinely been born um, with, with male and female anatomy and cells and all those kinds of things, um, it's just really unloving to uh, try, try and put them into some sphere when it's literally this is kind of medical and they need to kind of discover uh, how to live this out in complexity. So uh, I've got a list of eight, nine different ways that that could um, manifest itself, uh, being born intersex, but we won't get into that. Um, additionally, just want to define non-binary gender identities. Um, this is a spectrum of gender identities that are not exclusively masculine or feminine, identities that are outside the gender binary. So rather than adopting a cross-gender identity, as happens when a biological male identifies as female, um, they, they would just choose to be identified uh, as uh, non-binary. Non so this could, uh, terms like gender fluid, gender queer, agender, gender expansive, and so on. Okay, so there's just some terms for you. Um, 
One of the many reasons listening, I just said this, but I'll just reiterate it. One of the many reasons listening is so critical is because the transgender umbrella is so wide. So if someone tells you that they're transgender, you don't yet know what they mean. Okay? So that's just helpful, I, I hope. Okay, I don't, I, that could mean many things still. So I want to explore. I want to listen. I want to ask questions. Help me understand. Tell me your story. How has this manifested itself in you? See, we won't know how to be loving. We won't know how to lovingly support if we don't even know what we're dealing with. What is the biology? What are the psychological, emotional, and spiritual dynamics at play? Has this been their experience for as long as they can remember? Or is it what is referred to as trans-trending? I, wrote, um, I just read from Douglas Murray. He's a, he's a gay atheist, and he just wrote a book called The Madness of Crowds, which is a great title. He, he, he wrote a little bit about the cluster effect, um, uh, and he, he speaks to it this way. Once a number of children in a school claim to be in the wrong body, similar claims expand exponentially. This is called the cluster effect. And so this is something he's witnessing right now. The cluster effect is happening, every, happening everywhere. But the thing is, is, it's not contained to a school. It's, it's on the internet. It's in social media. And so the cluster effect is happening quite rapidly. So, so Mark Yarhouse speaks to this and he says, gender dysphoria historically has been early onset. Meaning between the ages of two and four, when, when little children are aware of their gender, I'm a boy or I'm a girl, um, if gender dysphoria is present, it's usually been present for a while and they will have been navigating this for many years. So in the last couple of years, though, a phenomenon has been taking place that, that Yar House refers to. This cluster effect is, is um, Douglas Murray's language for it, but Yar House explains it this way. In the last couple of years, there's been a massive spike in late onset cases of gender dysphoria, um, also known by the term rapid onset. These rapid onset cases are where, uh, for example, someone comes in asking for a chest reconstruction sh surgery at 15 and they have, ha have no history of gender atypicality, no history of gender dysphoria, but they're saying they're gender dysphoric in the last four or six months and want to correct that. And so... Um, that's really alarming, Yarhouse says, because many mental health professionals aren't sure what to make of that. It's a new phenomenon. So it's complicated. And when things are complicated, church, there isn't an easy one-size-fits-all answer, is there? It takes compassion and love and listening and walking alongside it's complicated, and so we have to figure out what we're going to do with that. So the invitation for the church is to think about this together and ask, is there a way to, yes, respond to cultural trends and gender ideological commitments that need to be evaluated and critiqued, and at the same time, be pastorally sensitive to people who suffer from genuine incongruence and distressing dysphoria? It should not be all or nothing. It should not be one or the other. The church could do it that way and, and unfortunately has done it that way. It's, it's, let's reject it all in an attempt to be biblical faithful. But the better way, I believe, is a more nuanced one-on-one -on -one connection, ministry to families, hearing stories, understanding them, and in the complexity, in the nuance, trying to forge a way forward of faithfulness. Can I just give us a really just simplistic, overly simplistic, unfortunately, summary kind of here. And then we're just going to dive into a few questions. Okay. 
what do I do if someone isn't a believer and they're, they're talking with me about um, yeah, their LGBT experience? What should I do? They're not a believer, LGBT, what do I do? Can I give you the answer? Love them and show them Jesus. The best way to show them Jesus is a posture towards and loving them. I know, I know that sounds really simple and, and neat and tidy and, and life is never that clean. But, but the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians, what have I to do with judging outsiders? What have I to do with judging outsiders? Meaning, what do I do if someone's not a believer and they're LGBT? You love them and you show them Jesus. I don't know if you saw the Rosaria Butterfield clip, but this is what she said, and, and Lori really said it in her video too. Um, Rosaria Butterfield put it this way, me being a lesbian was not my biggest sin. Being an unbeliever was. Okay? And so she goes on and says, so don't get sidetracked into focusing on sins, plural, about anybody. Get to know people well enough to know what's really the issue. Everyone has a longing for those things that eternal souls need. And the word of God is the only food. And the person of Jesus Christ is the only friend for all humanity. So don't get sidetracked with how people are presenting themselves or how they're identifying. That's not helpful. It's not even kind, she said. I shared one of my favorite quotes earlier. I'll share another one now by Madeline LaEngle. She wrote this. We draw people to Christ not by loudly discrediting what they believe, by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but by showing them a light that is so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. So do you hear your call to LGBT folks who aren't believers? Love them and show them Jesus. What about LGBT folks who are believers? I said this would be overly simplistic. Here's my response. Love them and show them Jesus. <laughs> um, because, because of this, it's, it's in the context of relationship that you will have the opportunity over time to share God's best for them in humility not unnecessarily divisively. I think there's a point for every person when they decide, when they, when they turn to Christ or they don't, where the gospel's offensive. Have you ever found the gospel offensive? Like the claims of the gospel. It's good news, but it's not good news to those who are perishing. The gospel is offensive. There's a point when the gospel is offensive, but here's the problem. So often the church is unnecessarily offensive too. <laughs> the gospel's offensive so let's, let's, let's not be unnecessarily offensive. Let's try and push that away and just love people, walk with them. The, the gospel will be held up at a time to be received or rejected. The gospel itself will do that. And, and like I said already, there isn't a one size fits all. I, I liked what Matthew said. I found it really helpful. Uh, Sam Albury says the exact same thing. There are LGBT Christians who know what the scriptures say. They don't need to be preached to then. Right? They, they get it. I love what he, I love what he said. It's one of my favorite parts in the video. He's like, I'm living the celibate life. I think I believe the scriptures. You know what I mean? This is costing me. And so he's sharing that. Like, he doesn't need someone to say, hey, just so you know, I just want to reiterate to you what scripture says. But he, he needs to be encouraged, right? So, so, so we need to understand there's not a one size fits all. There are those who just need to be supported and routinely encouraged. They're, they're striving to live 
uh, the Christian life. There are LGBT Christians who are unsure what the scriptures say. They need to be supported and in a context of love and trust and shown what the scriptures say, right? That's what, that's what Lori was doing with Kat. And be provided loving, humble help to apply the scriptures to their circumstances over time in relationship. And then there are also LGBT Christians who question or disagree with what the scriptures say. I'm talking about kind of historic view of the scriptures, historic orthodoxy. There are LGBT Christians who question or disagree with what the scriptures say. And and my response there would be as best as possible, like with anyone else, lovingly pursue them with truth and grace. It's complicated, it's nuanced, and I don't know that we're often very comfortable with that. But that's the call. That's the tightrope, okay? So, 11 minutes to answer 100 questions. <laughs> no. uh, there were a few that were asked a lot. Um, let's start here. Um, specifically, here's the one I grabbed, but, I, but the question was asked multiple times. Uh, my gay cousin's wedding reception is next weekend. I want to show love and care for her, but I'm wondering how I can participate in a ceremony that I don't agree with. Um, <clears throat> so what I'm about to say, I, I want you to understand that the framework uh, by, by which I'm speaking into beyond, I just want you to see that the kind of as a foundational piece, uh, re- really do affirm what, what our church believe that God designed marriage to be a one flesh union between two sexually different people. So we see that in the garden, male and female, he created them, and then he called them, be fruitful and multiply. It takes two sexually different people to be obedient to that, and we see the scriptures working themselves out that way on this trajectory of of that being the context for for sexuality and um, that one alone, okay? But the question is, how do I support my cousin um, in this tension of should I go to the wedding? I want to respond in, in two ways. Um, I think it depends. Um, and I think it's a gray area. I think it's a gray area. And some of you will disagree with me, and that's fine. You can be wrong. No, just a joke. <laughs> I, I think it's a gray area. Some of you won't, and I respect that, okay? Um, um, but here, here, here's, here, here's what I would say. Um, attending a gay wedding doesn't necessarily mean you endorse everything going on there. I have a friend and, and his, his philosophy in life is, man, if there's people in my life that I love, they'll hear, they'll hear what I believe on things. But, but typically they'll hear it once. And then they'll always remember. They know where I stand. You know what I mean? So he shares it once. And then what does he do after that? He carries on loving them and having a relationship with them and walking with them. And so my, my encouragement uh, specifically would be, um, I think it's gray. I think it depends. I, I don't think attending necessarily means you endorse everything going on there. Um, and so I would want you to kind of consider those things. The second thing I would add to uh, in response is be consistent. Don't let your hypocrisy show here, okay? <laughs> Meaning, um, if you only attend biblical weddings... Um, I, I can respect that. I think if it's an issue of conscience and you'll only, you'll only attend biblical weddings, I can absolutely respect that. I think that honors God as you genuinely work that out as an issue of conscience. So then don't attend the wedding. Uh, where a, but, but also then, don't attend a wedding where a believer is marrying an unbeliever. Be consistent. 
Don't also, if somebody was kind of an, in an at-fault divorce or kind of didn't have biblical grounds for a divorce and is getting remarried, be consistent, right? Because, because Jesus says, actually, when they do that, they're committing adultery with the future spouse over and over and over and over again. So, so, so don't hyper kind of hold the LGBT question or a gay wedding question up as, well, that's the one we won't be consistent, Right? If that's your conviction, I won't go to an unbiblical wedding as you interpret the scriptures. I think you just need to be consistent with that. Um, The the other shaping I would give to it is when it's a relative or loved one, um, if you don't attend, there's a good chance that it's going to sever or impair the relationship. Uh, And so therefore, you might miss out on future opportunities to embody the love of Jesus in a person's life. And again, I can respect where that's a line you draw in the sand and say, out of conviction, I can't go. And that may happen as fallout. Um, But I would would invite uh, considering uh, the fact that, man, if they know where you stand belief-wise for yourself, I think you can still recognize that then your attendance is one of um, not necessarily um, being affirming of everything going on, but it's reminding, man, I love you and I I want you in my life. Unfortunately, I have family friends. um, um, The parents didn't go to the wedding of their son who, who married a man. And um, they went on to adopt children. And uh, yeah, this woman hasn't met her grandkids and, and by all accounts never will because they've been blocked out of their son's life. And so the question becomes, is that, you know, that's the question. W- what's faithful? I think it's gray. Because uh, I can see you wanting to embody the love of Christ in attending and you know what that means. I can also see you as being like, man, I just, I can't, I'm wrestling with this and I see what the scriptures are saying. I can't, I feel like me being there is going to mean this. And I just, it goes against my belief. Like I, I can respect that, but, but th- there's just a few kind of things to throw at you to think about. Um, how do I deal with coworkers or students in my classroom who want to be called by they pronoun as an individual? Um, So, uh, which pronouns, uh, I anticipated this, a couple of these, so they're written in here. Uh, Which pronouns should I use for transgender and gender dysphoric individuals? Um, Again, some of you will disagree, but I have the microphone. So, um, um, I guess my my response would be, um, call them by the pronouns that they want you to. And and some of you may disagree, um, but here's why. I actually think it shakes all the way down to Christian hospitality. Do you want to have relationship or do you not? So what I've been told is that 95% of the time, if you won't call them by their preferred pronouns, you've kind of just severed relationship. And so I think the opportunity there, what I would advocate for is using their preferred pronouns, not because you necessarily agree with and believe the same thing they do about the pronouns, I, I believe they're, they're either male or female, uh, unless they're intersex, which is uh, uh, less than 1%. But I'm going to meet them where they're at so that I can be in a relationship with the person and walk with them and show them over time Jesus and what he wants for their lives. Um, again, 
this was just supposed to spark conversation, entrance into the pool, talk about these things, wrestle them through. Uh, I need to be sharpened. I, I, I know some of the responses to even the way as I'm answering these questions. I hear them. I get them. Happy to talk about them with you, wrestle them through. Um, I think that that's really, really healthy as we always dignify uh, the conversation. Four minutes left. Wow. Okay. Um, how should we respond to people who try to persuade our children to become LGBT plus? Um, that's a great question. Um, so I, I think it comes down to uh, a philosophy of, of the family that, uh, that I believe for my wife and I, that we're the primary disciplers of our kids. Um, is there a lot, of, a lot to be afraid of out there? Sure. So, so is there a, a lot of confusion out there? Sure. I, I, I guess here's what I recognize. No, even in, in my, my children's classroom with their teacher, I still get more time with my kids than they do. So if I really believe I'm the primary discipler of my children, right? It's not just homeschool parents who believe that, by the way. <laughs> if I believe that I'm the primary discipler and my wife together, that we're the primary disciplers of our kids, we have the most time with them, we get to spend their childhoods and our, our parenting years shaping their worldview, speaking into the world, right? Speaking into how we see it, how we think that the gospel changes it, how, right? And so um, that's a lot of time. And, and then they're going to be, at, at, at even, even if it's later, even if we could shelter them till they're 18, well, then it's right when they're 18, they're going to be confronted with all the push, right? So no matter what you do, you're, you're trying to raise your kids in an environment where they can sort through these things, treat people with dignity and humanity, and yet have belief and have conviction and, and kind of understand these things. Um, and so um, I get it. I get that, that some of our children... Um, might be persuaded by people of influence in their lives to consider uh, becoming LGBT or something like that. I, I think most instances that's, that's mainly a fear that we have uh, it could exist, but I would say, man, disciple your kids, right? Show them Jesus, show them that Christ-centered worldview and, and pray like crazy, right? Pray like crazy for your kids. Um, pray every night over your kids. I just think, man, the, the spiritual realm is where the real battle is. It's not against LGBT advocates or something like that. It's, 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 it's not even against flesh and blood. It's about principalities. And so, so the prayer for our kids, right, is so critical. And the training them up in the faith, so, so critical. Uh, here's an easy one. Will the curated resources be left up for a while so we can try and check out all of the resources? Yes. Okay. <laughs> In fact, we're going to roll out in the next couple of days. I'll write a blog post. It'll include the audio from tonight. It'll include a link to the resource list. Um, it'll, it'll include uh, a bunch of other stuff. We're just going to try and resource you like crazy. Keep putting, uh, keep the conversation going for you. So look for that blog post that'll uh, help you uh, there. Um, What is an appropriate and biblical response to gender dysphoria in children and their families? I'm an elementary teacher and I'm faced with this daily at my school and in the culture. Great question. Um, okay, I'm looking for a stat here. Here we go. Um, the latest data, it's, it's, it's a bit of a rough estimate, but it, it 
it's helpful, roughly 80 to 95%, so that's a bit of a spectrum there, but roughly 80 to 90, 95% of kids with gender dysphoria end up identifying by their birth sex after puberty. I think that's an enormously important stat to hear, okay? So if there's gender dysphoria in, a, in, in your child, um, I, I get that that can kind of raise some alarm bells, maybe freak you out, maybe you kind of go off the deep end and, and, and wonder, whatever. I, I think that's a really helpful stat uh, for a couple of reasons. Roughly 80 to 95% of kids with gender dysphoria end up identifying by their birth sex after puberty. Um, one of the reasons I think it's helpful is because you can kind of be, you, can, you have that in mind and it helps, I think, you kind of patiently, lovingly meeting them where they are, um, listening to them, hearing their story because a lot of... Uh, we can let the, the, the fear sever a relationship or the scenario kind of cut it off, right? Like, oh no, and if you're not supportive in these years, right, I think more damage can happen. And so to have that understanding that, you know what, puberty by and large in the vast majority of these scenarios kind of, kind of naturally sorts some of this stuff back. Uh, Mark Yarhouse, and this is a little bit, uh, some of what I've already said is a little bit, uh, unpopular, uh, but Mark Yarhouse as well says something that, that I tend to agree with. Many of you will not, and that's fine. Um, but uh, Mark Yarhouse actually, uh, if you have a child uh, who's gen experiencing gender dysphoria, Mark Yarhouse, would he, the approach he takes is, is, is embrace the least invasive options that, that they're desiring. So sometimes that's a girl who's like, I want to cut my hair short. Let her cut her hair short. Um, sometimes a girl wants to wear a binder. A binder is something that kind of flattens the chest that they can wear under their clothes because they want to be seen more as masculine. Perhaps let them wear a binder if they want to be called by different pronouns, like they, theirs, or, or by the opposite. Like, okay, those that, if they want to be called a different name, okay, yeah, I think you can, those are, those are what we consider least invasive, right? They're not surgical and they're not even hormone treatments and things like that. So that's, that's potentially a way to go. Yarhouse encourages individuals who experience gender dysphoria to resolve dysphoria in keeping with their birth sex. That's just kind of the general disposition there of, of walk it through, listen, love, um, but, but with a trajectory of trying to help uh, those with gender dysphoria resolve the dysphoria in keeping with their birth sex. He goes on to say, if those strategies turn out to be unsuccessful, then there is a potential value in managing dysphoria through the least invasive expressions. Um, Uh, Preston Sprinkle's contribution to that would be before we, he's speaking to conservative Christians, few of us in the room, uh, before we assert our theological view, we need to be hypersensitive and aware of how incredibly debilitating and distressing some levels of gender dysphoria can be. Sit down and, and talk to somebody with gender dysphoria. Sit there and listen for an hour is his advice and have them describe the dysphoria. It's excruciating. He says, so I think we need to be able to formulate our theology with that kind of compassion and posture. Theologically, um, the most important passage in the Bible in what it means to be human is correlated with what it means to bear God's image. And so we recognize that God created male and female. We want to help individuals we love resolve those things. Um, again, I spoke to intersex where there's uh, instances of ambiguity. Um, 
which isn't the case for 99.9% of people, um, then we kind of just lovingly walk that road as well. Okay, uh, here, here's another, um, some of these are, yeah, they're, they're hard to speak to without me feeling like uh, it's ruffling feathers, but I talked about the tightrope we walk earlier, and I think I'm having to do that a little bit here. Uh, how to deal with LGBT individuals who want to be involved in church. How to convey we believe God calls us toward holiness, and I think, uh, and the, the writer of the text is saying, and I think they are ineligible until they are committed Christians bearing fruit. I feel the same way with anyone who serves, not just LGBT folks. Okay. Um, so I, I think that's a question that probably comes out of um, the missional ecclesiology I was talking about. So this is, we're going to have to end it here, and I'm gonna, we'll try and put some resources, some of the other questions that came in, we'll try and direct uh, you to some answers to those questions. But, but a little bit of complexity, I think, in the missional ecclesiology piece. Um, our doors are open wide. And so we, we actually, it's a big win if, if, uh, if people who are not a part of church come through our doors, no matter what their life looks like. That's just phenomenal. We're so grateful for that. We should be rubbing shoulders with our community really, really well, right? And so um, a wonderful part of interacting with people and sharing Jesus with them over time is they might come check out our church and be here on a Sunday. And we just want to love, we want to embrace, have that missional ecclesiology that's just like, man, I'm so glad you're here. We want to love you. Uh, we want to point you to Jesus. We want you to know Jesus. We're super patient about the outside of the circle because we recognize the heart is what matters most. So man, we see all this stuff in your life and that's cool. You're welcome here. We're glad you're here. Roll with us, walk with us, join our life group, hang with us, right? So we rec that's, that's our part. Posture. That's our desire. Uh, underneath all of that, we have like people who serve in leadership in our church. We have ministry partnership, right? And so um, we need to understand that, that these, uh, any areas of incongruence with a call to script, the, what the scriptures say and things like that, o over time, as, 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 as people in kind of embrace becoming ministry partners or desire to serve in, in leadership or anything like that, those kinds of scenarios kind of work themselves out. And we just want to keep pointing them to Jesus. And yes, we want to see fruit in their lives, but we have to recognize that, that um, there should be no critique of anybody who comes through our doors, hangs, belongs, should invite, uh, be invited into the life of the church, community, um, life groups, shown Jesus, shown Jesus. And over time, right, the desire is that God will transform lives. And uh, my, my big encouragement there would be, let's be super, super, super patient people. Uh, I feel, and I'm the pastor here, <laughs> like we're only allowed to struggle with something for a couple of weeks, and then we kind of better get it sorted or like, dude, like, right? Do, do you ever feel that? Like, do you feel that way in the church? Like, man, like I need to clean up my act in this area or that area. Like, we, we just have to be super patient. So, so recognize truth and grace. Jesus was full of truth and grace. And so we want to keep holding up the scriptures. Man, Eldon, where, I don't know, where are you, man? Like, preach the, the gospel this morning powerfully about redemption. And we want everybody to hear that. We want that to work itself out in our lives. We want to open the word of God and proclaim the truth of it. And then we want to be really, really gentle, really compassionate, really loving, walk with people over time and just... Point them to Jesus. We don't need to unnecessarily alienate because it's like, man, you've been here for four weeks. Like you should kind of like have changed that by now. It's like, that's, 
It's cruel and unkind, and it's just not reasonable, right? And so my, my big challenge as we, as we shut her down here is this. Um, pursue the way of Jesus with me. Uh, let's, let's do that. Let's pursue the way of Jesus. Here's what that's going to mean as we try and apply it to LGBT scenarios, just like many other scenarios. Um, um, some religious people are going to be really offended by us sometimes, like the way I answered the wedding question tonight, for example. So, some religious people are going to be really offended by us. There are going to be other times when, when, we, when we do kind of share what the scriptures say or we do share, man, this is my conviction on this, that we will offend people who, who don't want the scriptures to say that thing. Um, and so you, you occasionally, as you live the Christian life, are going to hear it from both sides. And as you do, right, without unnecessarily being, getting in the way of the gospel, like, it's like, that's the road. If you're only hearing it from outsiders, never from insiders, or you're only hearing it from insiders, never from outsiders, if you want to use that language of in the church and out of the church, I actually think we probably have to change our missional ecclesiology a little bit. So... We could go round and round. Um, look for a, um, a post in the next couple of days that'll uh, uh, fire a bunch of resources your way. Um, there was another question actually I really wanted to get to, which was how do we get connected to other families with, with uh, uh, LGBT kids, for example, or teens uh, or transgender kids? Um, please just reach out to me or uh, another pastor. Um, we just want to just... That doesn't exist at present, but that could be a wonderful byproduct of, of what we're doing tonight. So, so please have the courage to, to share with me. I will treasure, absolutely treasure, uh, just, just getting a little more window into your life and, and then try like crazy to be a, a loving support in response. So approach me on that one. And uh, there were some other personal questions as well. I'm super approachable, I hope, and I just would love to sit down with you and, and talk about some of these things with you in the future. So let me pray over us and we'll conclude. Jesus, you're so good, um, so, so good. Um, you know, Lord, I'm, I'm so burdened about tonight because this, this is really, uh, um, this is something that, that as the church in, in our society today, we just so desperately want to get right, Lord. Um, yeah, full of grace and truth. So, so where I've misspoken or been brash or been unkind or been hurtful, Lord, uh, I just pray that uh, <laughs> there'd be grace for me. Um, Lord, um, there's, this is just the uh, tip of the iceberg. We're just, we're just having the conversation that needs to continue and continue and continue. So Lord, I pray that you give us patience, gentleness, compassion for one another. Lord, I pray that... Um, yeah, we would not be in those extreme poles that uh, we heard Lori talking about, Lord, of, uh, of believing the truth in such a way that unnecessarily damages people and wields scripture as a weapon. Lord, I pray we wouldn't be those people. Lord, at the same time, I pray we wouldn't be the people that adapt scripture to fit our inclinations and desires either. So Lord, help us walk the tightrope full of grace and truth. God, so thankful for this room. Uh, thank you for, for individuals where anyone in this room is, is, is uh, it's, uh, experiencing um, these LGBT uh, scenarios in their own lives. Lord, I, I'm just so thankful they're here. And God, I pray that you go with them, that you would um, minister to them. And you use our church to be really just uh, loving as we come alongside and help each other grow in our discipleship of you. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.